mention it. Yeah. That you mentioned a podcast with Kevin and Dane. My name is Dane. And I'm Kevin. And today we are talking about how did you describe the topic today? The main topic. We're gonna pick we have a bone to pick with uh with this new sort of neoliberal wokeness. Mm, yes. We are we read a book by Torre Reed entitled Toward Freedom. Toward freedom, the case against race reductionism. Um, yeah, so that's the main seg. For the opening, for, you know what, for the pre-opening seg, mm-hmm. just how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for yeah. asking. How are of you? Course. I'm, I'm, I can't complain. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. <laughs> right, right. I do complain right, always. Right, but... You don't really have much of a reason to complain. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, I get it. Anyway, so uh, I do have an opening segment, but just first, for a little continu- a little pod continuity, I'm not drinking out of a glass today, but I am. Watch this. You see this? You see this? <laughs> Can you hear that? Can you hear that? Right, right. That is the sound of loose leaf tea being s- strained. <laughs> I'm a I'm a simple man. I'm drinking uh a nice cortado. A nice java. What kind of milk did you get in that? Just regular just whole regular. milk? Yeah, just you regular. Know you know what is very fire is the uh the brevet. Yeah, the brevet is good. That shit yeah. is the brevet stupid is good. good. I used like, to get like I used to get the brevet pretty much all the time from this coffee shop when when we lived in Vegas. Right across from our from our complex, from our apartment complex. Yeah, it's fire. It's fire. Yeah, the brevet the brevet is stupid. Yeah. But um okay. So now that I'm ready to now that I'm equipped with my turmeric tea. Right. I want to so for my, my opening monologue, I want to get into another controversial digital media figure. <laughs> okay. YouTuber. Uh-huh. Twitcher, Instagrammer, uh-huh. and hip hop in quotes pundit. DJ Academics. You know now, what? We have been- wait, wait, time out, time out. Now what's up, what's up, what's up? You know, you know that you had to keep this under wraps. Because I wouldn't have let this, I would, I would not have allowed academics on this pod. Okay, well, hopefully, I'm going to provide <laughs> a. Uh, my critique is going to be a little more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So we've been, well, we, we we've been wanting to do like a full length episode on just sort of like the YouTube, like hip hop media scape in general. But I think I've put together this little monologue in such a way that. We can still have that conversation at some point. This mm-hmm. won't be exhaustive. This is just kind of a little, a little deep dive on this on this character that we <laughs> know as, as academics. But okay. um, for for those of you that don't know, uh, DJ Academics was born Livingston Allen. Oh, we're going full bio. <laughs> okay. Quick bio, quick bio. Born Livingston Allen on May 17th, 1991 in Jamaica. He and his family subsequently emigrated to the United States in 2001. He went to Rutgers. And as far as I can tell, he began publishing content on YouTube, publishing content on YouTube in late 2013, early 2014. Now, just a little more backstory, and then I'll get to what I really want to talk about. He's academics is like for sure a polarizing figure in hip hop for a number of reasons. I think 
among others that he's sort of a champion, a defender of the less lyrical but widely popular turn-up rappers like Takashi and Juice World and Trippy Red and all those cats. And those people are seen as controversial to some in that they don't like evince a real reverence for sort of the older generation of artists. And I guess academics as a champion of those kind of artists, and he's sort of unapologetically on their side. He sort of absorbs some of, some of that criticism. He, he's also widely seen as just a corny dude. He's, he's dismissed by, I guess you would say the establishment or if not the establishment, then the, the elder statesmen of hip hop. It's kind of like the, He's kind of like the Takashi 69 of hip hop punditry and media media. Like he has a huge presence and big audience, but I guess like the hip hop intelligentsia, the New York Times of the of, of hip hop, <laughs> the New York Times readership of the hip hop world, like considers him to be a kind of friv- frivolous, a kind of troll, and, and he definitely is. And and, yeah. and so far these are fairly like commonplace surface level critiques of academics. Um, there are others for sure. I would say his equation of monetary success uh, and numeric value in terms of units sold as an indicator of success in music um, completely undermines any credibility he's supposed to have as a music commentator. I'm convinced he knows nothing about actual music. Um, And that's really the only take he brings to the table. That's really the only framework he, if you can even call it a framework that he, he brings to the, the hip hop punditry game is, is his, is it, are his takes that, you know, Freddie Gibbs is not relevant because he's only sold X amount of records. Whereas X artist is relevant. Like that's really all he's. That's all he's good for. (laughs) It's really the only thing that he really brings to the table. But, um, I want to just talk about his ascendancy a little bit. The same way that I kind of talked about that I talked about Elon Musk's ascendant, ascendancy as a way to sort of cast a new light on what on his antics, his contemporaneous antics. I just want to talk a little bit about academics come up. So basically, and a lot of people know this, but I really kind of went down the fucking rabbit hole, which was which was gross. But but academics come up in the digital media space was a result of his exploiting gun violence in Chicago, mm-hmm. period. And and I think a lot of people know that. I knew that, but I didn't really, really know what it was all about. So the, the nakedness like with which he went about it and the real contempt he exhibited for victims of gun violence is actually really appalling. And I'm really not here to advocate for like canceling academics, but I am for like a more like literate viewership of like, how should I be viewing this person's take? And why is this person, why does this person have this huge uh, platform? And hopefully this timeline of his ascendancy can uh, shed a little light on how we ought to be viewing academics. So, he starts posting fairly straight up music news on his first DJ Academics YouTube page. He posts a Yeezus review, an interview with Charlemagne the God, his own uh, original content, which I think he did from uh, Rutgers. Um, and to use his own analysis against him, these videos in late 2013 were doing horrible numbers. Mm. Slowly, you can you can see him getting into more and more of the drama with less and less real like news making content, hard news and more and more just, you know, who's uh, like, who's threatening who with a gun and who's in whose DMS, that kind of shade roomy baller alert kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, he's, his, his videos are doing really like modest numbers, you know, 10,000 views of video during this time. And then late 2013, December 27, 2013 to be exact, he posts a video called, Chicago rapper kills his own mother for life insurance to floss on IG. And this video does a million views, more than a million. The five videos leading up to that video did 17,000, 6,000, 16,000, 8,000, and less than 1,000 respectively. So he gets lucky. He kind of like hits the jackpot. The timing is just right. He correctly identifies that there's a market for this kind of thing. 
And importantly, I think that video was the first time the word Chicago ever appeared in any of his video titles. I did some, you know, mm, you did some, some, real some, in-depth some statistical analysis here. Okay. The very next video he posts after that one, two days after the, the Chicago rapper video is titled Chicago rapper posts rocket launcher on Instagram. That video does a half a million views. So huge increase in viewership, like total exponential growth. Now, I guess to be fair, after those two videos, he still does try to post some more normative music news reviews, but they do horribly in comparison to the Chicago videos. Mm-hmm. And you can, again, begin to see a, thema- a shift in the thematic concerns of his content. All of a sudden, there are like tabloid headlines about Drake, young Jeezy threatening his son with a gun, who's been arrested, and so on. Then, on March 9th, he posts a video called Rondo Number no. 9, Arrested for Murder, and Rondo number nine turns out to be the same Chicago rapper who academics had posted for posting the rocket launcher on Instagram. Now, this video does about a quarter of a million views. I, I, I made myself listen to this video. <laughs> In the video, academics is dedicating so much time to chastising Rondo number nine, calling him a coon a hype beast for attention, ignorant, and basically arguing that because he posted a rocket launcher and was engaging in what academics called fuckery, he deserved to be going to jail. So he's like, academics is reveling in this analysis, like he's justified, and he's dedicating 0% of his discourse to interrogating, like, why would this man feel incentivized to post a fucking rocket launcher on Instagram? It's really like a very conservative, reactionary, personal responsibility politics type of analysis. And then he doesn't pay any attention at all to like, wait, by giving this my attention, I am in fact contributing to the problem while at the same time exploiting it for my personal gain. And then in that video, he says he just exhibits so much disdain for for these people. And he says, I don't care if he – this is a direct quote. I don't care if he's 16. He could be 14, 9, or 2. This savage is welcoming a type of energy into his life that will not end well. Mm-hmm. And I again, I, I don't think you have to be a moral philosopher to, to get this <laughs> shit. I don't think you have to have like gotten your – you talked about where you're getting your PhD. I don't think you have to have gotten your PhD from you know Princeton and studied with Harry Frankfurt right. to realize that – People are products of their environments. They respond to what's around them. And most likely there's some systemic shit going on that would account for why someone is behaving that way. It's not just some aberrant savage as you know, academic says over and over and over and over again. Yeah, that's that's most likely what, you know, that is what or how you sort of get at the root of those issues is like a person's environment, you know, just that raw facticity of one's life you know where are you growing up at at what you know what period in history like all those sort of things factor into that and so yeah like to not ask those questions is is irresponsible in the same way like we talked about last time uh with joe rogan's irresponsibility on his with his platform but then i also look at it like academics is the sort of um poster child of neoliberal hip hop, like Mm. the ability to sort of monetize any and everything like before in the, in the, you know, mid, mid nineties through like the early aughts, you had like all the gangster rap shit. You had all the, you know, the money, the jiggy, the jiggy rap shit. And that was sort of a, like, that was a, a, almost a caricature of this this lifestyle, right? Like you almost didn't believe it really for a lot of cats. Yeah. Um, but now as this stuff is starting to become real, right? Like you starting to see like, um, what's the dude from Chicago? Uh, FBG Duck just got killed. Just got killed, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, so this shit is, is real and the fact that he is looking to like, oh, I was trying to do, you know, regular news and shit like that before. And then I saw people fed off of 
the violence and the whatever. So I start pumping that shit. And that is a clear, like, characterization of neoliberalism in the sense that anything can become a viable commodity as long as people, you know, deem it to be so. Right, like what the market says goes. Right, right. Yeah, 100%. And the fact that he's following the market in that way shows you the sort of detriment that that does to like not, you know, not just the hip hop, not just hip hop in terms of like, here's somebody with a platform giving artists, you know, some type of shine or whatever, but then also like the actual media space, the, the discourse around the culture. And so it's like, you have somebody like academics who's doing ridiculous numbers clearly off of clearly undermining the very culture he's profiting off of. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's wild. <laughs> that, 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 that's, yeah, I'm getting that. That's ultimately my conclusion, but I'm, I'll quickly just, cause the timeline, it's the timeline continues to just be egregious and fascinating in its own sick way. So the next video he posts, and this is again, early 2014, is titled um, Rondo Number 9 Snitched on Himself. This one does almost a million views. Again, these Chicago-specific videos where he's specifically covering this stuff are doing – go ahead, go ahead. That's also tied to the larger sort of mediascape around that same time which is this heightened and hyper-focusing on Chicago and the violence mm-hmm. in Chicago, the whole Chirac shit, all of that or whatever. Like, this is like mainstream media is showing, you know, oh, such, you know, 12 people were killed in Chicago on this day. Right. 30 people were shot this weekend. But So it's just like, so he's actually, he's actually sort of, reproducing the mainstream line anyway yep. and so yeah it's yep. it's it shows like how he sort of how he so, sort of fits in fits into this overall you know narrative about chicago as this place of you know savages and shit like that because you know in the same that's the whole reason that you have the the chirac moniker is yeah right so it's like well, Go ahead, my bad. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's exactly where I'm going, so that's fire. But on that video, on this Rondo number nine snitch on himself video, the first thing Axe says in the video is, when did dumb get dumber? <laughs> so, so he's coming from this place of supposed moral superiority and outrage over the fact that this dude has been involved in, in street shit and violence. But then he chastises him for not doing the street shit correctly, which to me should make clear to everyone that the force that that's animating act to do these videos is not any kind of concern for people wrapped up in in gang life on Chicago in Chicago or nor is it a desire to report on the situation there to inform people such that they can make better decisions because that's one of his common defenses that he says in these videos. He says no one else is covering this shit. But I'm like, well, you, your motive is purely exploitative. You're not right. really interrogate. You're using this shit like you're, you're not an investigative journalist. No. no, no, no. <laughs> and so the video after that, he does a video about Rick Ross, which performs horribly in comparison. Then it's back to Rondo Number Nine in Chicago. The next video, and I'm just going to keep it at this. The title is titled "Keep Rondo Number Nine in Jail." He's guilty of being stupid. That video does 150 thousand views. Um, then the Rondo content largely goes away. Um, he has a few sensationally titled young thug, young thug gender drama videos that do well. He's covering the antics of chief Keith. Mm-hmm. His content fully tabloid at this, at this point. And then on April 2nd, 2014, he posts, uh, about a Chicago rapper named little Mark. Uh, the video was titled Chicago rapper, little Mark killed, three days after dropping this video, it does a million views. Um, and these videos again are still, are still on YouTube on his old YouTube channel. Um, a week after that, he posts a video called the average Chirac 
N-word weekly itinerary, which I only point out because it's just so full of contempt for the people that he's supposedly covering. Mm-hmm. Um, and now this is the first time that the word Chirac appears in his video titles. Mm-hmm. That video doesn't do numbers-wise, but it's notable. I noted it because of just how sneering and condescending and, and contempt and, and what, contempt. When, when was this? This was April 2014. Yeah. And so I'm sure, I think Chirac was definitely in the discourse by then. And so by April 19th, he uploads a video titled The War in Chirac. Right. And at this point, he has turned Chicago gun violence into a web series. This video opens, The War in Chirac video, where he explicitly titles it The War in Chirac. The video opens with academics saying, quote, another episode of The War in Chirac. This time we lose another character out of Chirac. So he's he's calling a 16-year-old kid who was murdered in Chicago a character as if they have no reality but for to entertain him and his viewers and provide him with content like it's a fucking TV show. And then I'm almost done here. But then from there on, it's a full-on web series. April 28th, video titled... Chirac goon charged with murder. April 29th, 14-year-old Chirac Savage murders girl over Facebook beef. April 30th, Chirac Savage's murder anti-violence activist. May 4th, another video about Ronda number 9. May 5th, Chirac, some of these I don't even, they're just kind of sick. Like they're just kind of gross. Mm -hmm. And I, I just feel weird just even saying the word savage all over. But so a simple command F search revealed 78 videos with the word Chirac in the title in the two or so years he was active on that channel. The word savage appears 64 times. Wow. So Axe come up is largely attributable to his propensity to capitalize off of young black men in particular killing one another. And and we're supposed to take his opinion of hip hop seriously. Hip hop, which at its core is an art form rooted in empowering the disenfranchised. So I just think that there has been so many criticisms leveled to academics, but they all kind of missed the point, which is that we should, nothing he says should be taken seriously at all. So all of the controversy that he generates is really unwarranted, given that we shouldn't be paying him any yeah. mind in the first place. Yeah, yeah. He like like you said, like it's not really. It's not so much canceling him because you know of something he said. It's actually not putting any value in his opinion because of what he represents. That's it. That's that. You just said it better than I did. That's it. That's totally it. Um, yeah, I'm not here to cancel academics, whatever. Not that I, you know, right, I right. have that magic power to just yeah, cancel. Yeah, but no, I feel you. I like he's yeah, he's reprehensible. Like straight, like repugnant. <laughs> yeah, like I, that's why I say like. It's really, it's other people in this, you know, uh, hip hop media space that I disagree with or don't really like like that. Um, But yeah, academics is a different monster entirely. Like you sort of see like the lack of character or moral compass. Like it's really not even like it's a mask off sort of sort of thing with him yeah so fuck academics and it's it's also sort of disturbing um when you think about the viewership (laughs) you know well yeah let me let me just qualify with it that uh, this doesn't exist in a vacuum right right there's a fucking market for right exactly exactly and so and it's like yeah like that's that's the part that's that's really disturbing is those are the videos and this is across the board and it, you know, like academics is obviously isn't the only person guilty of capitalizing off of sensationalism and shit. Um, And so it's just crazy like that. It's actually a market for that. You know, when, when you really sit back and look at it, like you say, like, is this shit all just for entertainment? Like, have we gotten to the point where we, you know, where we just look at everything, news, real life shit, like everything is just like, hmm, can I make a meme out of it or yep. laugh at it or what? Like, yeah, that's it's pretty yeah. sick. 
And, and I, one other thought I had was just, which ties into what you said about how acad- I hadn't even thought about that, but how academics is sort of ref- in, a, in a weird kind of way distilling what's happening in the mainstream like media, mm-hmm. the, the, the cultural kind of uh, fascination with Chicago. But what I was thinking while being disgusted by these videos was that his picking of Chicago was even if he knew it or not, was highly strategic because he could have, you you could pick some lower income neighborhood that's predominantly white and start reading the crime <laughs> right <blogger laughs> and start doing this kind of like reality show web series, but it's just going to be primarily white people. Right. And so the fact that he focused on a neighborhood that's predominantly black and occupies this sort of such a weird space in uh, like American consciousness is totally exploit exploitative to the nth degree. Right. That's why I said like that's why I framed it that he's like reproducing this. He's reproducing that mainstream that mainstream line and, and sort of like you said, like what the sort of American imagination is of like black young black sort of inherently violent youth and so he may not have consciously said like yo i'm gonna do chicago because of this you know reason but it's he actually is someone clearly who accepts the narrative about chicago already in order to even do it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, that's why he's just reproducing it. it it's, yep. it's no thought into it because really you're just getting, he's he's doing a cruder uh, sort of uh, X-rated version of what you'll get about, you know, Chicago, the violence in Chicago on Fox News. Yep, there we go. <laughs> so, yep. yeah. All right, well... Again, fuck academics. Yeah. Shout out to Freddie Gibbs. <laughs> All right, so let's take a little break, and we come back. When we come back, we will talk about uh, neoliberal wokeness. Yeah. with uh, Kevin and Dane and at this time we would like to extend a sincere thank you to all of our listeners mm-hmm. uh, to all of the people who are out there you know manipulating the algo right it's influencing been influencing it in shady working. ways it's been working the last couple weeks yeah 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 um, so please please uh, subscribe to us go on other people's phones, violate their trust right? and subscribe it. to them. And then when they, when they ask you like, Hey, why am I getting notifications for this podcast that I have no idea what it is? Just gaslight them. Be like, Oh, you told me about that. You put me onto that. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or tell them it was a gift in that. Oh yeah. 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 Listen to it. Do you just say thank you? Right. Exactly. No, you just say you're welcome. welcome. Just say you're welcome. Yeah. Don't right. say anything else. Just say you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, yeah, so reach out to us on Instagram. Uh, t- our Twitter is non-existent. The Facebook is non-existent. Uh, email us. I still, like, the goal is to have people reach out to us via email, which is ntymypod at gmail.com. Very simple. 
or ntymypod Instagram. That's the handle. There's other ways too, I'm sure. Yeah. Suggest, suggest, I would love, like we have a whole, we have an agenda here. We don't have a, a, a dearth of content, but I would love it. It would just make my day if people would like, be, like suggest topics. Mm-hmm. That would be fire. I would love that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and as always, thank you to our sound engineer, Chris Giuliano. And our in-house graphic designer, Steph Silver. Yes. And um, let's get to it. So what are we talking about today, Kevin? <clears throat> well, funny you ask. <laughs> um, we're talking about the... So we're, we're obviously... We're plagued by COVID-19 at the moment. But we're also plagued by this performative empty woke politics shit that we just need to discuss so um so yeah so we we chose uh Torre Reed's text toward freedom uh the case against race reductionism because it's like if we're going to talk about these issues then let's actually talk about why they exist Yes. As opposed to the sort of surface level, superficial shit that, you know, in the end is just self-righteous. Yes. And, Mm. you know, and it's it's sort of like, I guess for our listeners who may be more inclined to the woke politics, hopefully this will be... uh, scathing critique that <laughs> that will change your mind on on that shit. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a beautiful setup. So tell me where you uh differ in my sort of like recapitulation of what Reed's project is. Okay. So I took the book to be centered around a handful of fundamental questions, but I think the core of what he's trying to address is this question. What is to blame for still existing racial disparities in American society? What accounts for them? Are these disparities attributable to a historical, implacable, foundational racism, as someone like ta Coates would say? Or... Is it more a form of state-allowed and state-sponsored racialized policies in combination with broad neoliberal neglect of the American working class at large, which has disproportionately harmed African-Americans who have been in a vulnerable, disadvantaged societal position from the jump? And Reed, as you can probably tell, is going to opt for the latter. Correct. So one of his central claims is that given the disproportionate impact of deindustrialization, the decline of the union movement, um, is that like a redistributive universal programs are the only way to address economic and racial inequality. And I just want to say at the outset is that like, I think I used the word reactionary in the opening segment to describe academics. Mm-hmm. Reed is not some reactionary writer who would just like dismiss hundreds of years of, you know, state sponsored oppression with a dismissive sentence or two. He, he's not, I don't think he's not a denialist about any of the systemic harms that have befallen black Americans from the inception of this country onwards. His fundamental claim is just that a broad, working-class cross-racial movement aimed at uplifting the working class across racial boundaries is a necessary condition to redressing racial disparities that still exist today. So I think what I wanted, how I want to go about this is that since Reed's, one of Reed's fundamental claims rests on his um, interpretation of New Deal liberalism as actually being beneficial for a broad swath of African Americans, do you think that case holds up? Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I, I went back 
I went back to a quote from CLR James. Um, he's a, a Caribbean. He was a Caribbean uh, theorist, uh, philosopher, writer. He wrote the book, The Black Jacobins, on the Haitian Revolution. And you would think that you hear about the slave uprising, that it's simply just the racialized slaves revolting and rising against this white planter class, right? And CLR James says, because uh, he, he sort of points out the different sort of, you know, you had the mulattoes, you had like all these different, you had the free blacks, you had the slaves, you had the poor or the, the petite blanc, the grand blanc. So it was like the the whole shit was, was mixed up. And so what he said was, the race question is subsidiary to the class question in politics. And to think imperial, think of imperialism in terms of race is disastrous. But to neglect the racial factor merely as incidental is an error only less grave than to make it fundamental. So it's like for so for Torrey Reed, like for his project, it's rooted in that you can't talk about class. I mean, you can't talk about this race question without addressing the class component, but you can't reduce it to just simply class because there is a racialized experience that is specific to black people. There's a racialized experience that's specific to, you know, native people. So it's like, so with him, it is definitely a more nuanced take. And that's, I think, where people become like, oh, it's it's reactionary or, you know, he's sort of uh, being a class, I mean, a race reductionist, I mean, a class reductionist or whatever. Right. Um, but it's, it's actually how people's lives are organized. It's organized around class position. It's organized around locality. Like it, it's, it's much more nuanced than just well, this group is black. And so therefore, you know, these people are over here are black. So therefore they're all subjected to the same sort of oppression. And I always say LeBron James kids do not have the same experience as the kids growing up in East New York. Like, and the reason that they don't have the same experience, despite the fact that they're both black, is because LeBron James is a fucking billionaire. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think read a large part of what he's saying rests on um, his contention that like neoliberalism has has disproportionately harmed African-Americans. And this might be a good place to just kind of quickly kick to you to give a little like definition of neoliberalism. But I I pulled this quote from uh, from Reed. Uh, talking about talking about Reagan. Mm-hmm. Quote, as the nation's first neoliberal president slashed both income tax and corporate tax, deregulated the banking, energy, telecommunication, and transportation industries, and undercut consumer protection, protections as well as labor, labor and environmental laws by either defunding the relevant federal agencies or cynically appointing antagonists to direct them. So that's like a little description. Right. But so what is the logic of neoliberalism and why did Reaganism come to be consensus? So post, post uh, World War II, you have the seven, I mean, you have like the Fordist mode of production, right? Like the assembly line cats. And then, as you start to deindustrialize these urban centers, you move a lot of that manufacturing, those manufacturing jobs to the suburbs. But even that isn't generating the type of wealth for corporations that they see that they could get as places in China and you know Southeast Asia. All these places are starting to open up their markets as as that sort of Eastern Bloc Soviet communists, you know, all those countries are like, all right, well, this project isn't working anymore. Let's, we don't have to turn to the, to the West and open up our economies and try to build up our, our countries like that. That's, you know, exactly what China did. And so when that happens, these 
corporations take those jobs and they move them all overseas, right? Yeah. The logic behind it is let the market dictate where best, where, you know, best to put labor and shit like that. And eventually that's like neoliberalism is, is basically trickle down, uh, it's trickle down logic. It's sort of like, let's get the experts, (laughs) let's get all the, you know, like let the corporations, uh, reap as much, reap as many of these benefits as possible because eventually it'll all trickle down to everyone else. Right. And so, yeah, so basically what neoliberalism does is just places sort of everything within a market logic. Everything becomes a commodity. Everything, when I, you know, we say everything is literally like every service you can think of, right? The fact that you have Uber, the fact that you have Uber Eats, like all these sort of just basic things that we used to just do ourselves have become services now, right? Because you just place all of this shit within this logic of it's a market for it. Yeah. And so, and that coincides with the gutting of the public sector and the public. And so to be clear, what Kevin, what you just described is to be contrasted as Reed says with the sort of public good model of governance or the, or new deal liberalism. Right. And then Uh, one, one other thing too is the shift to private privatization coincides with that flattening of the state because that was the you you have Reagan and Thatcher going yep. at it with the USSR right and so it's like you have the the fall of the Soviet Union which was the state <laughs> right and so you you have this ideological uh war going on during that that cold war period and so that neoliberal marketization of of literally every aspect of human life <laughs> comes out of an ideological war with the, you know, fallen Soviet Union. Yeah. And Reed says time and time again that that logic that has come to be commonplace has disproportionately affected black Americans. And so contrast that with New Deal liberalism. Now, Reed says or I should say contrast that mode of governance or really lack of governance mm-hmm. with uh, like a, a a public interest-based mode of government. And, and Reed, Reed go, uh, takes care to note that New Deal programs were marred by racial discrimination, racial right. discrimination. But he does say that millions of African-Americans benefited from New Deal initiatives – um, sometimes even in greater proportion than their share of the general population. Um, he cites figures such as uh, 20% of all the individuals on welfare rolls, uh, despite black Americans being just 10% of the population were black. Uh, several hundred thousand African Americans acquired work through the uh, PWA, the Public Works Administration, the Works Progress Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, Um Many African-Americans were given access to newly constructed public housing before, he says, mm-hmm. public housing was a vehicle for warehousing poor people. Right. Um, he then says, yes, the 23% of ag- uh, agricultural and domestic workers who were black were, like their white counterparts, excluded from Social Security coverage. But African-American industrial workers um, comprised 8% of this union uh, – I, I, don't have the name in front of me, uh, were covered by other pieces of legislation. Mm-hmm. So he's making the case that New Deal liberalism was actually beneficial. And Yeah, I mean, like you're talking about like in that that specific, because that's that's one of the key arguments that Ta-Nehisi Coates puts forth is like, you know, the, the, the rural agricultural workers that were black, you know, all the sharecroppers who were left out of was left out of the new deal, but that's, that was obviously I, I, more so. Oh, go ahead. Oh no. I just want to spell that out clearly. What like Ta-Nehisi Coates is saying that 
the 23% of black agricultural and domestic workers who were black, who were excluded from social security coverage, Ta-Nehisi Coates says that that was, he, Ta-Nehisi Coates uses that as evidence to argue for the sort of implacable foundational racism, racism as the engine of American history. Whereas Reed points out that the real history is a little more complicated. Right. And, and that's a clear, like that, that statistic is like a clear example of how complicated it is because it speaks more to like locality, like, this is a rural urban divide, right? And so at that time, we're talking about, you know, coming into the World War II era, post-World War One, Great Depression, going into World War II era. That's what the, the urban centers were the priority. So because this is who's, this is where you're man, manufacturing weapons and, you're manufacturing goods. I mean, it wasn't a full-blown consumer society until like the fifties, but that was, that was the priority. And so for the, for the uh, black people who didn't migrate for, you know, reasons beyond their control. Right. Um, Yeah. They, they got caught up into that shit, but it was, it was predominantly rural whites who, were fucked out of that shit as well, you know, in in the deep south, in Appalachia, and shit like that, right? So, and the reason Reed says is that the the owners of the farms rejected coverage for. Well, Reed actually says this was a kind of fire quote. He says, "While it is safe to assume that most Southern farm owners in the 1930s were racist." Mm-hmm. The fact that farm-owning proprietors generally opposed Social Security coverage for their farm laborers, black and white alike, um, makes clear that their motives owed less to the original sin of racism than a desire to keep their labor costs down. Right, right. And I mean, yeah. and that's that's sort of like why it's it's interesting to me that like I don't know if it's if it's that people just don't really see it for what it is like can't see it or something or if it's like more cynical right because well when you say what what when you say see it what do you mean okay my bad um see like the the inextricable relationship between race and class yes and and really owing going back to clr james quote like the foundation like to me, I don't I don't look at, you know, the original sin of well, the original sin of America, I guess you could say, is really the the wiping out of the native population. <laughs> right. Um but then the second sin or the co the co-original <laughs> sin <laughs> um of of slavery, I'm like, I don't look at that shit like, oh, they enslaved black people for the reason that they were black. They were enslaved for monetary aspirations, right? Like economic aspirations. That's why, that's why you got slaves because you wanted to make money off of them. But the nature of American slavery was so barbaric that you needed to justify it in a way. And so that's when you use race to justify the barbarity, but it's right. not like, because I think the, the former, which is to think that you, you know, black people were enslaved because they were black is to then, I think, accept something inherent to black people. Well, it's to affirm right. race as a, bio, as a, bio, as a, yeah, as a reality. Yeah, exactly. And so it's exactly. like, so yeah, I'm like, it, that's why I say like either people aren't really looking at this for what it actually is, or it's more cynical and you know it, but it's like, well, the race, this, this type of woke race line is more, you know, I'm, I can, I can gain more popularity and, you know, sort of career success and so on and so forth as a result of, of pushing this line. So, yeah. And so what do you, what do you see as some, as some, prime there's so many directions because right <laughs> part of me wants to what i have in my notes part of me wants to just because we've talked about race on this podcast a fair amount mm-hmm. but 
the concept of race itself hasn't really come up, but we can't, you kind of just hit on it. Like I think that Reed and what I'm committed to is that racism is real, but that race isn't real. No. Um, and that, and I think that's what uh, Reed is really arguing against here. People that like he calls, he calls uh nehisi Coates's conception of race as ontological racism, right. i.e. <laughs> there is an ontology of race. It really exists right. as a force in the world. Whereas Reed, I think, would say racism is real, but race isn't real. And, and Coates' and others' commitment to racial ontology leads them to misidentify the sources of the very iniquities that they are concerned with, that they're trying to right. solve. Exactly. Um, exactly. And I think that's the, that's really the, the main thrust of... Yeah, that's, that's why I pulled out the CRR James quote, because, I mean, it sums it up perfectly. It's like the race question is subsidiary to the class question. Like that's just the motivations, the... The motivations to do, the motivation to do all of this shit, the motivation to set sail, <laughs> go across the world, kill a bunch of people, say, hmm, we gotta bring, you know, bring these other people over here and do like all of that shit is for wealth, power, and economic gain. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is, this is not for some battle of the, uh, battle of the races and you know what i'm saying like this isn't some like game in that in that sense you know what i'm saying like and and i think today i think today is more apparent because of the sort of neoliberal turn like it, it we no longer need like race actually doesn't need to function in the way that it did you know yes. back then Right. So what do you, so, so, so I feel like you're, you're talking about it, but what do you define race reductionism for me? I mean, it's part of read the title of Reed's book. Right. And what do you see as some examples of that happening? You're, you're just alluding to some. Yeah. So basically like the, the idea that race, if it's not, if it's not biological, it's somehow like ethnic or cultural but then it's still treated basically might as well be treated as well biological. Be treated like biological. Um, it, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like, um, looking at, at sort of history through this, through this trajectory of racial, racial oppression for the sake of racial domination. Right. Like, sort of everything else around it is is sort of incidental right like so so this mm, that's really well said so um so yeah so the 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 race reductionist line is simply what i was saying about slavery like black people were enslaved because they were black as opposed to black people were enslaved because they were the forced labor of a growing capitalist state. And I mean, when you look at it through the lens of of free labor and what slavery generated for the United States, then you see the reasoning behind (laughs) slavery as opposed to, well, then, what's what's the sort of thrust (laughs) beyond the economic point like if it's just you know everything like racial terror all all these things are linked to uh that inextricable relationship between race and class it's just it's always you know sort of been the case so yeah 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 i think what I kind of extracted, well, I, 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 okay, before I get to that, I have a question about you, what you think about uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' writing in general uh, and the arguments he's known, he's most known for making because it's funny because fucking Torrey Reed was- He, he ripped him. Oh my <laughs> God. Yeah, he was he not in a disrespect. Oh, way, no, 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 no. This is like straight- Pulled, pulled, his, pulled him apart yeah. in just a systematic way yeah. and just- and had some and bars in there too. Right. Because when he was like Ta-Nehisi Coates, I don't think um, was intending to become like a neoliberal spokesperson for, right. but, but he is. Um, 
but so what, what I noted is that um, whenever the Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, The Case for Reparations came out, that might have been around in 2014 mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was. And just as a uh, – to, to dive into some sort of like identity type thinking, as a white person reading Ta-Nehisi Coates, his writing almost takes on this kind of like quasi-religious uh, – mystical quality Mm. and to demure to be exposed to someone who is sort of dismantling Coates's arguments feels at least for me as the you know somewhat well-intentioned white liberal guy that I am with my fair amount of white guilt it feels kind of like heretical I'm like, wait, can we really be questioning Ta-Nehisi Coates right now? But the thing is, is I kind of agree with, and it, it's crazy because it's it's like, I think to me and a lot of people who are like me, Coates has become like doctrine, right, right. Um, and to question it, and to question it, and to posit anything else other than sort of like this implacable, ontological, fundamental racism as the explanatory force of every harm mm-hmm. that has befallen black. It feels I'm like, I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Good. No, that's, <laughs> um, I mean, that's a, that's a better starting point than most, but, um, I mean, I, I appreciate Tanahasi. you know, um, I enjoy his writing. Um, like, I actually like the beautiful struggle more than between the world and me. I don't, I never read beautiful struggle. Yeah. But I did read between the world and me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I look at, I look at Tanahasi like Torrey reading, you know, describe like the sort of spokesperson for this like neoliberal intellectualism now. And it's like, it's well-meaning, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, um, but it just doesn't get at the root of what it is. It's like, you're still sort of, you know, with Coates, you're still sort of like dancing around the shit. Like, yeah. as opposed to, you know, somebody like Tor. And then we also got to keep in mind, like, this is an academic you know, an actual historian, his fucking dad is like one of the preeminent political scientists and shit. Like, so yeah. he's like, uh, you know, blue blood. <laughs> he's, a be- he's a beast. Yeah. So it's like, it's, so it's, a, he's, you know, it's a different, it's a different level, like dealing with that anyway. Like it's a sort of unfair fight, so to speak with, with him and Colts. But yeah. uh, nevertheless, he just, he just pointed out what I've always sort of taken from Coates, which was like, yeah, but. Right. Like, you know, everything, you know, he says, I'm like, yeah, I, 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 I can get with that. I can get, but, and and that's sort of like my takeaway every time I read him. And so, uh, um, and yeah, and, and Tori Reed sort of just points out like, <laughs> He just, he just, he, he systematically just dismantled, you know, Coates' whole like racial framing. Yep. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that's sort of a crystallization of what Reed means. He's arguing against race reductionism. And basically, the most concise wording of that thesis that I found in the book, and I think I put this is really, I kind of paraphrased Reed here, but. Basically, that the idea that reducing every harm against Black Americans to racism, positing racism as as the fundamental explanation behind every racial disparity, is reductive, and it leads to misdiagnoses of the problems, and then ill-informed policy prescriptions, and then in the end, with the as these neoliberal policies continue to stay in place, in the end, who continues to suffer disproportionately? Right. right. So I think that's really the crux of, uh, of <laughs> it's, the, it's, the here. it's sort of like um, 
one of my one of my favorite academics is uh, uh, Kianga Yamada, Yamada Taylor. She's at Princeton, but she always talks about um, black faces in high places as this sort of like neoliberal project of eradicating racism. And really what it is, what it is like when you reduce it to, to race is you let off, you let the system off the hook. So it's like, it, it reduces racism to a set of like interpersonal interactions and feelings as opposed to a system that's codependent upon political economy. Yes. So when you do that, it's like, yeah, you, you misdiagnose shit and then you turn around and you're, you know, passing empty policies or you're like, <laughs> you, you have elected officials draping themselves in kente cloth, you know what I'm saying? And taking a knee and, uh, you know, like that's, that's race reductionism right there. Right. Like putting painting Black Lives Matter on the street leading up to the White House is race reductionism when you don't put forth the policy that puts, you know, that takes away. um, Damn, I I can't think of uh, the immunity, whatever the sort of immunity clause that police officers have or whatever, right? Like you have a, a, a street that has Black Lives Matter on it, but then a police officer can kill a black person on that street <laughs> and we'll go through the same cycle again where nothing happens, right? And so it's like, that's the that's the risk that you run when you play the race reductionist card. So, yeah. yeah. And just maybe, yeah, I, I had no idea that, I mean, again, Reed, what Reed is really advocating for is like broad policies that transcend race that are aimed at like broad working class uplift as the most effective way to actually address specific harms. Right. And then, the, but the, get, the, no, go, go, go. The thing is, too, is um, when you when you take this approach, I'm just thinking of it like just in terms of political strategy, like you take this stuff and if you, if you push the class line and, you know, you get a, you get policies that disproportionately help the working class. So whether that is like student debt, student debt, um, relief, um, health, free healthcare, you know, all these sort of things, right? Now you have, Black people who have been disproportionately disenfranchised throughout the history of this country, they have a certain level of uh, a certain safety net, certain social safety net, right? That now allows for Black people to organize, to then go forth with the race-specific policies and in organizing around shit like that because now you have you know you have something to play with at this point as opposed to like thinking that just following the race question is then gonna unravel this you know the system in a way that then we can rebuild like that's it's just not that's not what what the what this project was sort of set out on so that's not going to be the thing that that's not the reset button. <laughs> yeah, that was that was beautiful. <laughs> Following the race question is not going to lead to the unraveling of what people think it's going to lead to. Right. Yeah. So, you know, a little light light talk. Yeah. Yeah, something slight. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, shout out to Tori right. Reed. We got to get him for an interview. That would be a yeah, he's a he's a heavy writer. Yeah. Yes. I know, and this shit is like, people go pick this up because it's only like, what, 175 pages? Not a tome. You like, know? very digestible, right. very accessible without being reductive. Right. 172 pages 
of Fire. Go pick that up. All right. Thanks, everyone. Peace. Now that you mention it, yeah. Now that you mention it.